And this is live special coverage from NPR News. Ryan, go ahead and continue. He's, he's someone who um, was able to tell the committee and the public that he was motivated to come to Washington, D.C. on January 6th because he felt that Trump called him there with his tweet. Um, he's somebody who listened closely to what the president said. He believed his lies that the election had been stolen. Um, so he was able to give a sort of every man's account of, I bought what the president was selling. Uh, and ultimately, he's someone who has come to see uh, the light uh, and, and, and come to believe that he was misled. Um, and I think that that is something that the committee wanted to do. I will note that having followed um, the, 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 uh, the criminal trials of many of the people who have been charged um, with crimes related to January 6th, that not everyone feels this way. Not everyone who participated in the attack on the Capitol um, feels the same way that Stephen Ayers did. And so I think that it's powerful to bring his testimony here, but it is worth bearing in mind that not everyone who came to the Capitol on January 6th and stormed the building had that same sort of uh, kind of uh, revelation over time. Okay. And then separately, Ryan, we also heard from another witness, Van Tatenhove. Can you tell us a little bit about what he said, what you made of his testimony? Well, he's somebody who worked with the Oath Keepers uh, about eight, nine years ago. Um, and he said that, in essence, the Oath Keepers, which is a far-right ex extremist group that played a, a significant role on, on January 6th in storming the Capitol, he said that it's, it is a dangerous group, that its leader, uh, Stuart Rhodes, um, views himself as a sort of self-styled militia leader, as somebody um, who has built a sort of cult of personality, so to speak. Um, and he says that, you know, ultimately, this is a group that poses a threat um, to to the country. And he, uh, you know, I, I have to say a lot of what he said is stuff that I've heard from experts who research the group as well. So this is testimony that certainly jibes with what others are saying about Rhodes and the group. Domenico, at the beginning of today's hearing, we heard how former President Trump was repeatedly told he had lost the election, but he then kept pressing the case, including on the morning of January 6th. They seem to be setting up this notion the president knew what he was doing was wrong. Yeah, I mean, repeatedly, we continue to get these breadcrumbs that the former president knew that these groups, for example, were armed and dangerous, but he welcomed them. Uh, and we get these sort of hints at the idea that this was premeditated, that he wanted uh, the, the group to uh, march to the Capitol, that he wanted to march to the Capitol, and that somehow some of the folks within these groups knew that this is something he was going to call for. Now, one thing I feel like we haven't really gotten a huge, clear uh, you know, vision of is really some of the detailing of whatever those communications were between the former president and some of the folks in these groups. We heard Cassidy Hutchinson, for example, the aide, former aide to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, had said that, you know, uh, former President Trump had directed Meadows to talk to Roger Stone, a former advisor, and Mike Flynn, the former general who was kind of wrapped up in this QAnon conspiracy theory and then, uh, you know, inundated with some of these extremist groups, that we were going to maybe, I thought maybe we were going to hear some of the detail of what they talked about. And we really haven't gotten any of that. I want to go to Claudia Grisales next, who's been in the room today. Tell us about how this testimony from these witnesses, how was it received in the room? Yes, it was 
in terms of, of hearing from these witnesses directly, uh, especially Mr. Ayers, when he would talk about his personal experience, the deception he felt for following then President Trump's rhetoric um, and the regret at um, at getting pulled into this kind of thinking and how he had to step away from all of this. It, it was really touching at the end in terms of these witnesses, uh, especially Mr. Ayers got up and went to go talk to all of the officers who were in the room, including uh, former DC police officer, Michael Fanone. And, and Fanone was asked after the hearing, what did he say to you? And he said, he apologized. And it was a very emotional, touching moment, lots of hugs. And, and usually we see some of these committee members, uh, maybe a couple come down and, and meet with the witnesses, shake their hands. But we saw the entire panel come down, all the members come down and, and shake the hands of the witnesses, thank them, and also go to the officers. It was very much a full circle moment because the first hearing for this committee last year was focused on these officers. and the pain that they suffered that in their cases, such as Officer Ganell, who talked about it recently in, in an opinion piece, how he felt that former President Trump led the mob, uh, led this attack, and he was still suffering for it. And, and it was a very touching moment when uh, one of the uh, lead presenters today, Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin, focused on Ganell and everything that he has been through, and Ganell was wiping tears away at that moment, it was obviously a very emotional um, moment for many involved there, and it really brought it back to why they're all here, because they want to tell the truth. The committee wants to tell the details of what led up to this to ensure that officers like Officer Gunnell never go through something like this again. Deirdre, it may be worth just pointing out, you have covered the Hill for a long time, and typically the counting of the electoral votes, the peaceful transfer of power on Capitol Hill, it is typically a formality. And today we heard a good deal of retelling of the story of January 6th from the committee. What do you make of what we heard today compared to what you have heard from covering these other hearings? I mean, it kind of covered the waterfront in terms of, of different topics. I mean, it was framed as a hearing on right-wing extremism. And, and, and I thought maybe we would see sort of more of a direct link between some of these groups and uh, former President Trump. We definitely saw more evidence of the links between these groups and a lot of his allies like Roger Stone and Mike Flynn. We saw encrypted messages between them and uh, and some of the leaders of these groups. Um, but one big bombshell that we did hear at the end of the hearing about President Trump was that he called a witness who has not testified yet before the January 6th committee after the last public hearing with Cassidy Hutchinson. And this witness in, informed the select committee that they were called by President Trump, informed their lawyer, and the vice chair, Liz Cheney, revealed that they turned that information over to the Department of Justice. So it was not what we expected to hear about Trump, but I mean, it was a very serious allegation um, about, you know, in, you know, getting involved with witness testimony. We, hear, we heard some of that in a previous hearing when we saw some of the messages, but this was the vice chair name checking President Trump himself. Ryan, can you weigh in on what we heard there from Liz Cheney at the end of the, of the hearing, this idea that former President Trump has called this this unnamed witness and they've given that information to DOJ? Um, 
I think that there are a couple of things to bear in mind. One is that uh, the individual, according to Cheney, did not pick up. Um, I think that more than anything, this is sending a message to Trump that um, you cannot call witnesses. The assumption is, of course, that Trump was calling the witness to, to try to sway testimony. Right. Um, that is certainly the, 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 the allegation that is being made here. Certainly, it's the suggestion um, from Liz Cheney. Uh, the defense would be, actually, he never spoke to him, so you know, maybe he was calling to talk about a vacation. Joking here, but the point being that that legally, um, this may not exactly carry water, but it is something that, that will send a message politically um, that Trump is argu arguably trying to meddle in this investigation, um, and it puts him on notice. We heard the testimony from one of the rioters, Stephen Ayers, who said he had no intention to go into the Capitol when he came to Washington on January 6th. Let's listen to what he said. No, we didn't actually plan to go down there. Um, you know, we went basically to see the Stop the Steal rally, and that was it. So why did you decide to march to the Capitol? Um, well, basically, uh, you know, the president, you know, got everybody riled up, told everybody to head on down. So we basically were just following what he said. Ryan, I know you've been following these sort of dual track processes here. What do you think the committee was trying to get at with this testimony and this line of questioning to him? And was it effective? Well, one of the things that the committee has been trying to do is present a case that uh, Donald Trump is directly responsible for inciting the mob and then um, sicking it on the Capitol, so to speak, directing it at the Capitol like a loaded gun. And I think that that's what they've been trying to do um, with other bits of testimony. But today, um, we heard them try to get that out of an everyman uh, American who was at the rally, didn't intend to go to the Capitol, came to D.C., he said, uh, to support the president, um, and that it was what Donald Trump had to say at the rally and directly telling them to go to the Capitol that made him go there. And he also talked about how he was angry. He was angry after listening to, to Trump's speech um, and as he was marching down, down to the Capitol. I think that that's part of the case that the, the committee here was trying to build. Domenico, we also heard some new evidence of text message exchanges on January 6th between former Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale and Trump spokesperson Katrina Pearson. I want to hear you respond to this. So let's take a listen to Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy as she reads those texts. Mr. Parscale said, quote, this is about Trump pushing for uncertainty in our country, a sitting president asking for civil war. And then when he said, this week I feel guilty for helping him win, Katrina Pearson responded, you did what you felt right at the time and therefore it was right. Mr. Parscale added, yeah, but a woman is dead. And yeah, if I was Trump and I knew my rhetoric killed someone. When Ms. Pearson replied, it wasn't the rhetoric, Mr. Pascal said, Katrina, yes, it was. Domenico, what did you make of that exchange, that correspondence? Well, I have to say it's eye-opening, but not 100% surprising to me because, and it's not because of Pascal, it could be anybody, right? I mean, there's a, a whole host of people within the Trump uh, orbit who, you know, have either run campaigns before, have been involved in politics. You've heard, how many reporters have you heard say, well, privately we hear, uh, you know, Republicans on Capitol Hill say X, but, you know, publicly they don't want to be seen as going against President Trump. There are some people who you see who seem to have come off the Kool-Aid and some people who you see who are continuing to drink it. And, you know, it looks like at least in this honest moment with Pascal and Katrina 
Pearson. He didn't know, obviously, that his text messages were going to be uh, revealed for an entire national audience at a committee looking at this. But you see that he came off the Kool-Aid for a few minutes. I also want to play a little bit of audio from Jason Van Tatenhove. He is the former Oath Keeper who testified before the committee today. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. What it was going to be was an armed revolution. I mean, people died that day. Law enforcement officers died this day. There was a gallows set up in front of the Capitol. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war. Deirdre Walsh, he is essentially an expert witness, but he was not at the Capitol on January 6th. Can you talk us through why the committee might have wanted to focus on him here? I think a lot, a step back in terms of what this committee is charged with doing, right, is they are charged with investigating what happened that day and making recommendations going forward. A lot of the testimony that we've heard over the last several weeks has sort of, you know, shown us that, you know, things were worse than we knew that day, right? Uh, You know, in terms of the violence, in terms of the planning, in terms of, you know, how many people were involved, people at the White House were setting off alarm bells. I mean, this was a witness who was saying, you know, this Oath Keepers group was a paramilitary group that was looking for a way to legitimize its activities Um, and sort of warning that, you know, this could happen again. If we go down this road again, uh, this kind of group could be activated again. I mean, I, I I don't know that he was the most compelling witness, but I think it sort of played into the com- uh, the committee's narrative uh, about what comes next. We do know that we're going to get this report in the fall, and there are efforts to try to pass some reforms to uh, the process, the Electoral Count Act, that governs how Congress certifies the electoral votes. um, And perhaps some of this testimony will be uh, sort of underlying the argument to why that needs to happen now before the next election. Claudia, we saw something a little different in the run up to this hearing. In the past, we have sometimes gotten the witness list in advance. We've known what to expect, but that wasn't the case today. And I understand that that's because of security considerations. Exactly. We heard from committee select aides who told reporters that they would not be releasing this information. Yes, they have released it in the past. We would get it at least several hours before the hearing. But it seems as though there was a shift when we uh, saw the hearing with Cassidy Hutchinson, that emergency last minute hearing that was held last month. And the concerns that were brought up at the end of that hearing Cheney brought those up as well, where she featured uh, some attempts to reach out to witnesses. They didn't reveal who these individuals may have been that were trying to get in touch with witnesses, but it did raise the specter of witness tampering. And so we've seen a shift since then about sharing these witness names. Uh, And they really kept the details of who was appearing because of these fears of security very closely held. And it could be something that we could see going forward, especially with this new explosive detail that Cheney shared today at the end about former President Trump also trying to reach out to a potential witness and having to get that over to the Justice Department because of the high level concerns there. So it just shows as this investigation continues that the security concerns for these witnesses is also rising as well. 
Investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach is back with us. Tom, we were promised at the start of this hearing that they would show links between former President Trump's inner circle and these violent domestic extremist groups. Do you think that the committee showed those links, made that case today? Well, of particular interest to us going into this hearing was possible links between uh, Trump's advisors, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn and extremist groups. The committee did a a job of, of laying out some of what is publicly known about Michael Flynn and Roger Stone's links to the, both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. They didn't appear to go much farther beyond what is already in the public record about those ties. I think what was really interesting and what was new to me from, from the committee's presentation was the recognition among some in Trump's orbit, particularly former Trump spokesperson Katrina Pearson. She had helped plan some of those events around January 6th, that she was really worried about what she was hearing from figures like extremist figures like Alex Jones, Ali Alexander, the people who are leading these quote-unquote Stop the Steal events. And she was really concerned about the violent, often extreme rhetoric she was hearing. And yet those concerns were not really heeded in the run-up to January 6th. And Domenica Montanaro, in the couple of seconds we have left, have you heard anything? Do we get the sense whether former President Trump was watching today? We don't know that he was watching, but you know that he is watching because he is always watching these things. (laughs) That is going to do it for our live special coverage of the January 6th committee investigating the insurrection at the Capitol. In a moment, we will return to our regular programming with much more analysis on our air, online at npr.org, and across all of our other platforms. Our thanks to our team here, Deirdre Walsh, Claudia Grisales, Domenico Montanaro, Tom Dreisbach, and Ryan Lucas. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We will keep bringing you more live special coverage of these committee hearings as they continue to to come. I'm Juana Summers, and this has been live special coverage from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. More coverage of today's hearing coming up. Also, two and a half years into the COVID-19 pandemic, only 20 percent of the people of the continent of Africa are fully vaccinated. That story is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services, diagnosing and repairing building envelope and water intrusion problems. Consultation scheduling at brsboston.com. On Wall Street, stocks stepped back today. The Dow fell 0.62% or 193 points. It closed to 30,981. S&P and NASDAQ lost nearly a full percent. The S&P finished at 38.19. NASDAQ closed down at 11,265. We'll have the forecast coming up. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. In the forecast, sunshine continues today. It could give way to a few showers this evening and overnight tonight. Maybe some thunderstorms before 11 o'clock tonight. Hail in some areas. Lows about 68. Tomorrow should make it to about 88 degrees for a high, mostly sunny skies. Partly sunny Thursday, some showers in the early part of the day, about 82 degrees tops.
Left-handed pitcher Chris Sale makes his season debut for the Red Sox tonight. The seven-time All-Star will face the Tampa Bay Rays in Florida. Sale hasn't pitched for Boston since last fall because of a rib injury. He missed the entire 2020 season, most of last year, having Tommy John surgery. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from X-Chair, ergonomic home and office chairs. At home or in the office, X-Chair offers dynamic variable lumbar support as well as Elemax heating, cooling, and massage technology at xchair.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Two and a half years into the COVID-19 pandemic, let's check in on the vaccination effort in Africa. Only a fifth of people on the continent are fully vaccinated. Plans to bring more doses to African nations have fallen short. Last month, the World Trade Organization reached a deal to relax patent protections so poorer countries could produce vaccines themselves. We're joined now by the co-chair of the African Union's Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance. Dr. Ayoade Alakaja, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. To begin with, you work at the forefront of vaccine distribution and access for African nations. So just give us a snapshot of what the situation looks like across the continent right now. Well, I mean, as you say, I've been working over the last couple of years at the forefront, not just for access to vaccines, but for access to all countermeasures, um, which includes diagnostics and now treatments that as they've become available um, to ensure that those in the low and low middle income countries of the world, many and most of which are on the African continent, have the same access to vaccines, diagnostics, which are tests and treatments like things like Paxlovid and, and other and oxygen, the very basic that people in the US, the UK, EU and other parts of the world have. Um, That has been a deeply depressing role to be in really over the last uh, couple of years as we have seen that the high income countries of the world have clearly prioritised themselves but forgotten that this pandemic is affecting all of us. What does that inequality translate to in terms of human experience? You told the New York Times people are dying silently. People absolutely are dying silently, and thank you for, for for talking about it in human terms. Because I think you know we saw in the early days those awful images from New York hospitals, from the, from America, and from hospitals in Brazil, and that was the measure of the impact. But what do you do in countries where you do not have health systems? to be overwhelmed. So we have said for parts of the world and parts of Africa that, oh, well, they haven't had COVID. But that is not true. It is just we haven't had the cameras being able to roll that that B-roll in in hospital wards because those wards do not exist, in ICUs because in many communities, ICUs do not exist. So people have died silently. People have died at home. So many of these deaths have gone unrecorded and therefore there has been a 
silent pandemic, a silent toll on parts of this world where the inequity in measuring the impact of the pandemic itself is pushing the inequity of access to the countermeasures and to the tools needed to prevent further infection. World leaders are sounding the alarm about the more transmissible BA5 variant. And in the fall, the U.S. and other highly developed nations are expected to get boosters that specifically target that variant. Do you expect that those supplies are likely to reach African nations? Absolutely not. I mean, the vaccine doses are rolling out to the African continent, but far too little, far too late in many ways. You know, we were left at the back of the queue whilst the rest of the world has moved on. You know, the rest of the world is providing not just fourth boosters, you know, what we're calling the primary series plus a booster, but they're also now looking at variant adaptive vaccines. They're looking at the next generation of vaccines. There, of course, has been greed. There, of course, has been the sense of we must take care of our own first. And that is human nature. And any global leader, any president, any prime minister has a responsibility primarily to their own. But when you recognize that this virus is a virus, it is not a person, it is not a, uh, it, it, it is not a system, it is a virus that is airborne. And therefore, unless all of the world is safe and is protected from it, we will continue to see these waves. Now, today it is BA5. We don't know what it will be tomorrow. So it is self-defeating because to take care of one's own self should be to take care of the rest of the world and to help the rest of the world take care of themselves. Not charity, but global solidarity and partnership, I think, is what the world is calling for, which is lacking. What do you make of the World Trade Organization's deal that is supposed to make it easier for poor nations to access COVID vaccines? How much of a difference do you expect this to make? Sadly, in reality, it is very watered down. It is not going to help for COVID today. And it does not include tests and treatments. It is just for vaccines, very limited, very, very narrow for vaccines only. What we need is a broader agreement. And I understand they're going back to that negotiating table to work on tests and treatments. And until we can produce what we need in Africa, what we need in Latin America, what we need in Asia Pacific ourselves, we are always going to go back into this scenario because people's nature is to protect their own. So there will be export bans and various measures to stop whatever it is, be it a vaccine or a treatment, leaving the shores because people are trying to protect their own. So what we in Africa are saying is we need to be able to produce ourselves. We're not asking for permission. We're asking you to stop, to remove the roadblocks in the way. The scientists are ahead. But policy is behind and policy is what is holding the world back in this moment. And so having waged this fight for equity every day over more than two years of this pandemic, do you have any hope that this gap can be closed? (laughs) That um, do I have hope? One must always have hope. Do I have hope that the equity gap can be closed? I think the equity gap is due to so much more that is fundamental within our systems. I think the equity gap is due to the fact that the global health and global development infrastructure is flawed and fundamentally broken. Many of the systems we're working with today, the Bretton Woods institutions, were put together post-World War II to fix Europe. 
Listen to what I just said. They were put together to fix Europe. And yet they're being applied to the rest of the world. They are not fit for purpose. They are based largely in high income parts of the world. They are not fit for purpose for low and low middle income countries. So what we must do is we must reshape, we must reimagine, we must rebuild the global health and global development architecture of this world to make it more inclusive, to make it such that the voices from the South can be heard and can be understood, where we build it again together for the good of the whole world, not just for some of the world, so that all may have a chance at life and quality of life, and the true definition of health. Dr. Ayo Adealakaja, co-chair of the African Union's Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance, speaking with us from Abuja, Nigeria. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, President Biden is heading to Israel and Saudi Arabia today, his first visit to the Middle East. He's going to meet with a Saudi crown prince, and human rights activists are concerned. For them, this visit is a big blow to the human rights cause. You know, they say they're concerned about how the crown prince will act afterward, uh, whether this will embolden him. Biden's Middle East trip coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered. Tonight, the Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays play game two of their four-game series. Chris Sale takes his first spin of the season. Sale's been out with injuries and surgery. Tonight, he'll pitch against the Rays' Corey Kluber at Tropicana Field in Florida. 7-10 start time. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. Your credit score helps determine your financial future, but how do you get a better score? Well, that's not always so obvious. So the most frequently I ever paid off the credit cards was weekly. It did absolutely jump our credit. I mean, like every week it would go up 10 points for each of us. I'm Kai Rizdal. Consumers playing the credit score game next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The House Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol last year by pro-Trump supporters heard testimony today about the ways that violent far-right extremist groups answered the former president's calls to come to Washington on January 6th. As NPR's Tom Dreisbach tells us, one-time Trump national security advisor Michael Flynn was also connected to the groups, even getting security support at one point. 
We've known for a long time that Trump has given sort of the tacit support to some of these groups. For example, he was asked to denounce QAnon at one point in the 2020 campaign. He described them as people who love their country. Uh, when asked about to denounce the Proud Boys, another extremist group, he said they instead should stand back and stand by. Uh, when it comes to Flynn and his role in this you know, very contentious December 18th meeting at the White House. We know that Flynn, uh, according to the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, received security help from the Oath Keepers at a December event. That December, Trump sent a tweet urging his supporters to descend on Washington to help overturn the 2020 election results. Many Venezuelans in the U.S. are thanking the Biden administration today for extending a program that will allow nearly 350,000 to temporarily stay here. Here's NPR's Greg Allen. The Department of Homeland Security extended for 18 months temporary protected status for Venezuelans who arrived in the U.S. by early March of 2021. The extension doesn't apply to an estimated 250,000 Venezuelans who fled the regime of President Nicolas Maduro for the U.S. since then. Samuel Vilchez Santiago with the American Business Immigration Coalition says the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela has only gotten worse. Recently arrived Venezuelans live in constant fear of being deported to a country in which their rights are systematically violated. Groups say newly arrived Venezuelans should also be eligible for TPS, and they're asking Congress to approve a path to permanent residency. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal judge has thrown out most of the claims that a former Boston police commissioner, Dennis White, filed against the city after he was fired. Today, Judge Leo Sorokin threw out 11 of 14 claims. Among them were White's accusations the city violated the state's Civil Rights Act, a state law that governs the removal of a police commissioner, and breach of implied contract. The city placed White on leave two days after his appointment as police commissioner. It ultimately fired him after former domestic abuse allegations against him resurfaced. He denies any wrongdoing. Judge Sorokin is allowing White's lawsuit against the city to move forward on three other claims. They include due process, defamation, and right to privacy. A Boston biotech says it's developed a way to use gene editing technology to lower a person's risk of heart attack. WBR's Fausto Menard has more. It's called base editing, an updated version of the gene editing tool CRISPR. Say Katharason, CEO of Verve Therapeutics, calls it surgery without a scalpel. Last week in a phase one clinical trial, he says his company successfully edited the DNA of a person predisposed to heart disease, the leading cause of death in the world. It's really the first step in a journey, hopefully, to where in a few years we'll have this kind of once and done medicine for the treatment of heart attack. The intravenous treatment is designed to be a one-and-done procedure, though more clinical trials and regulatory approval are needed before it might become more widely available. That's not likely to happen before the end of the decade. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. A state-appointed panel says more funding, better incentives, and reliable transportation are all needed to address dropping enrollment in rural Massachusetts schools. The Rural Schools Commission was formed in 2019. The group finalized a set of recommendations for the state this morning. It includes $60 million in funding for rural districts. Representative Natalie Blay of Sunderland is a commission leader. She says the changes will help the success of schools and their communities. You know, having a, a, a strong local school really can help to bring people to the region. We have to ensure that our schools are strong. Place says population decline, lower wages, and fewer tax dollars are factors in dropping enrollment. It's 435. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Pretty warm but beautiful today. Should have sunshine through the evening hours. Then overcast skies tonight. Maybe some thunderstorms before 11 o'clock tonight. About 68 degrees for a low. Warm and sunny weather should make another appearance tomorrow. Highs about 88 degrees. Some showers, then some sunshine on Thursday. 84 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses. A platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What's President Biden hoping to accomplish when he sets out for the Middle East tonight? Well, for one, he's looking for ways to ease high gas prices here in the U.S. And the president says he's seeking more stability in the Middle East, like a truce in the disastrous war in Yemen and a path to prevent violence between Israelis and Palestinians from boiling over. We're joined by three of our correspondents in the Middle East who are covering this trip. Asma Khalid and Daniel Estrin are in Jerusalem, and Fatma Tanis is in Jeddah. Saudi Arabia. Good to have you all here. Hello. Hey, thanks for having us. Asma, I want to start with you as a White House correspondent. Um, What is prompting President Biden to take this trip now? You know, the president is not coming to this region with grand plans. There is no talk of brokering a historic peace between Palestinians and Israelis. This is kind of a tune-up trip. Um, You know, the White House has a pragmatic view of the region. It has said many times that its goal is to promote a secure, stable Middle East that does not erupt into violence. But, you know, I want to point out, Ari, that this trip comes 18 months into Biden's presidency after he's already gone to Europe and Asia, other parts of the globe. And it seems later than some of his recent predecessors, which to me signifies the decreasing priority of this region in this administration. They believe the U.S. role is different in the Middle East than it was 20 years ago at the start of the Iraq war. You know, that being said, analysts I've spoken with do see one immediate impetus. They say, were it not for Russia's invasion of Ukraine and rising oil prices, it's really not so clear the president would be going on this trip at this particular moment. All right. So low expectations. What does Biden hope or expect to get out of the trip? You know, there is pressure on the president to show he's doing as much as possible to bring down gas prices. And one way to do that would be to meet with the Saudis and convince them to release more oil. Uh, But I should mention experts have very little expectation that this trip will actually lead to Americans paying substantially less at the pump. And then the president has also been publicly insisting that this trip is not about oil. He says it's about regional stability and encouraging Israel's integration into the region. And, you know, some of that no doubt has to do with isolating Iran and ensuring other powers, whether it's Russia or China, do not dominate the region. But, you know, I also want to point out, Ari, that the president really believes in the power of face-to-face negotiations. And on this trip, he's expected to have face time with 11 leaders from the region in just a few days. And it'll be interesting to see if there's any sort of tangible progress that he's able to get out of those meetings. That is a large number in a short amount of time. Let's talk about what those other leaders want to get out of Biden. Uh, Daniel, uh, President Biden's going to meet with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas. What's he looking for? 
Yeah, Abbas wants a lot of things that Biden might not be able to deliver on. First of all, uh, the Palestinian president wants reassurances that Palestinians will not be left behind when Biden advances Israel's relations with Arab leaders in Saudi Arabia. Abbas also wants Biden to reverse a lot of Trump's policies that favored Israel and hurt Palestinians. Abbas, for instance, wants the U.S. to reopen diplomatic offices for Palestinians that Trump closed in Jerusalem and in Washington. That's going to be really hard for Biden to deliver on on this trip. You know, Abbas also wants Biden to promise any kind of horizon for Palestinian independence. Biden will offer words and support, but he's not restarting a peace process. So he is going to announce some economic gestures, we're told, of aid uh, to Palestinian hospitals. And the U.S. is also encouraging Israel to announce its own steps for Palestinians. They're going to be announcing construction permits for Palestinian building in the West Bank. Israel's thinking about uh, giving Palestinians faster internet. So economic steps and that's about it. Biden's also meeting with Israeli caretaker Prime Minister Yair Lapid as Israel is in political upheaval with another election scheduled for November. Uh, what are they going to focus on? And is there really much that can be done when there is so much uncertainty about the future of Israeli politics right now? There is a lot uncertain. And so what they are going to be doing is they're going to be putting out a joint statement of principles on the future of the relationship between the countries in the years to come. But really what this is also about is Biden just trying to make a good impression on Israelis. You know, Trump had a lot of support from Israelis. Israelis are still sizing up Biden. Um, and Lapid and Biden have something in common, which is that they're both political moderates facing elections, both facing the possibility of right-wing populists returning to power. Let's pivot to Saudi Arabia. Fatma Tanis, you are in Jeddah, where Biden is going to sit in on a summit of Arab leaders, which had been planned before Biden's visit. Um, the focus of this part of the trip is the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. What are the Saudis looking for there? You know, Ari, this is a big moment for Saudi Arabia and its crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Amid ongoing criticism of human rights abuses in the kingdom, it's a sort of validation for the crown prince who needs this kind of engagement on the world stage to fulfill his big plans to modernize his country, which he calls Vision 2030, uh, and, to, and to make Saudi Arabia less dependent on oil sales. He really needs investments from places like Silicon Valley, for example. Uh, and so the Saudis will really be looking to prove the kingdom as a strategic partner for the U.S. Um, and of course, one big thing on the Saudi agenda is Iran. Um, you know, in recent years, the Saudis and other Gulf nations have struggled with what they see uh, as inconsistent U.S. policy in the Middle East. And they feel like they have had to deal with Iran on their own at times, including during attacks on their own territory without the U.S. coming to their defense. And on the issue of the Yemen war, uh, the Saudis appear to be in a stalemate there. Uh, after years of fighting, the UN says hundreds of thousands of civilians have died, uh, and the Saudis now might be looking for a way out. Uh, at the same time, they are likely interested in buying more weapons from the US, which Biden suspended because of what they had been doing in Yemen. So if this is a validation for Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Asma, how does the Biden administration explain what appears to be a real 180? That is a good question, Ari. We've seen a shift in tone, a shift in rhetoric from the president, and he's had a real delicate balancing act. Uh, there are a number of strategic regional priorities that are important to the Saudis that are also important to this White House. Uh, take, for example, Yemen or Iran or even energy. And, you know, at the same time, the president does remain under enormous pressure from human rights groups at home, uh, as well as fellow Democrats within his own party who question why exactly he is going to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so over the weekend, the 
president preemptively defended his decision with an op-ed in the pages of the Washington Post. He wrote that his goal from the start had been to, quote, reorient, not rupture, relations with a country that has been a strategic partner for 80 years. Okay, well, we've talked about what might come out of the Israeli-Palestinian meetings. What about in Saudi Fatma? What could be reasonable expectations for agreements that might be reached in that round of meetings? Right. You know, as Asma mentioned earlier, this is basically a visit to maintain the relative stability in the region right now. So we'll see efforts to keep the Yemen truce that's been ongoing for three months. All parties will rally around what the U.S. calls the strategy to contain Iran. Uh, And on the relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia, we've seen baby steps here. No expectations at the moment for major announcements, but they will be building on the progress that's already been made. Um, On the issue of oil, you know, the Saudis are already producing near their capacity. There's not much more that they can do. So they will try to stabilize the oil market. But again, analysts say that's unlikely to change prices at the pump too much. And of course, there is human rights. Saudi activists I've talked to who are living abroad because they can't speak freely in the kingdom. For them, this visit is a big blow to the human rights cause. You know, they say they're concerned about how the crown prince will act afterward, uh, whether this will embolden him. They will be watching for Biden to bring up human rights while he's here in Saudi, and also how the president will interact with the crown prince, you know, whether he will be friendly. And this is something that the world will be watching for, too. NPR's Fatma Tanis, Asma Khalid, and Daniel Estrin, thanks to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, the bloodshed continues as Russian artillery pounds neighborhoods in the north and east. But in one small sign of normalcy, the city's garbage collectors have returned and they're picking up the trash again. NPR's Jason Bobian got up early to hit the streets with the crew of a city trash truck. On the northeastern edge of Kharkiv, the streets of Saltivka are empty, but the dumpsters are full. Rows of high-rise apartment buildings in Saltivka are in ruins. Some have craters from rockets, others are streaked black from fires, windows are blown out. Yet some residents are returning to fix up their apartments, and some never left. Andrei Taranenko is driving a large white garbage truck through the neighborhood. Uh, when people started to come back and they, you know, they left fridges here full of food and so on, so they started to yeah, throw away things they didn't need, so of course there were a lot of garbage here. Because of the shelling and debris in the streets, he says garbage trucks couldn't get into some areas for weeks. Trash was piling up on the sidewalks, everything was rotting. He says it was horrible. The Saltivka neighborhood remains in range of Russian artillery, although the shelling here now is intermittent. Tarnenko and his three-man crew all have been issued bulletproof vests. The windscreen of their truck is shattered from an explosion. Even more menacing, there's a walnut-sized hole in the passenger side of the cab where a piece of shrapnel from a mortar went through the door. It lodged in the back of the cabin behind Taranenko's seat. And there's a booming of artillery here from the front line, which is only a few miles away. Yeah, yesterday, for example, it was quite loud here. And uh, honestly, I, I, I was quite scared because you never know when it hits the uh, next time. He jokes the safest thing to do is to just keep moving. There are no shops or businesses open in this part of Saltivka. The power is still out. 
Svetlana Barbasheva has remained here throughout the war. She says she takes cover in a basement bomb shelter when the shelling gets really bad. She says it used to be that garbage men making a racket first thing in the morning with the trash cans annoyed her. But now it's a sign that she and her neighbors haven't been forgotten. Thank to the guys because they haven't forgotten about us and uh, they have been with us uh, since the first days of war and thank our mayor for remembering about us. She breaks into tears talking about Taranenko's crew coming to collect the trash. But keeping the trash trucks moving throughout Kharkiv over the last four months has been complicated. More than a thousand dumpsters have been destroyed. Also, the trucks are constantly getting flat tires because the streets are strewn with debris, says Alexandra Shepitko, the foreman of the Central Truck Depot. He says one truck's engine was destroyed when it was hit with shrapnel from a mortar, but the driver was fine. <laughs> he says our guys have got uh, steel balls. <laughs> when Russian artillery is pounding a particular area, he says the crews stay away until things cool down. And while there has been damage to a lot of their equipment, so far, none of the trash collectors have been injured or killed. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the author of a memoir on how she's reckoning with the fact that the truth about her family ancestry was kept from her for more than three decades. Why didn't you tell me? Coming up. In the forecast, a nice evening. We should have some thunderstorms, some of them strong overnight tonight. The temperature should be just about 68 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunny and hot, 88 degrees for a high, so just a little bit lower than today. Thursday could bring back more showers with partly sunny skies in the afternoon, cooling to the low 80s. Left-handed pitcher Chris Sale makes his season debut tonight for the Red Sox. The seven-time All-Star will face the Tampa Bay Rays pitcher and Cy Young Award winner Corey Kluber. Game time is at 7:10 tonight. It is in the Boston area now, 84 degrees at 4:49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See Sunday supper menus and more at volantefarms.com. Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine. It's Tufts Medicine. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Some Republicans say state legislatures should have the power to override federal elections. This was more or less the theory that was being pushed by the folks who were asking to set aside the results of the 2020 elections. The Supreme Court is taking up a case that could make that the law of the land. I'm Anthony Brooks. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Imagine living your whole life believing a certain story about yourself, where you came from, who your family is, only to see that story upended because you discover your mother has been lying to you your entire life. Well, 
This is exactly what happened to Carmen Rita Wong. In her new memoir, Why Didn't You Tell Me?, she confronts the true origin of her origin story. And as the truth unfurls, she's forced to rethink her family, her race, and the choices her mother made. It's a story about how your entire identity can shift over one lifetime, rocking your very sense of belonging. Carmen Rita Wong joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. So, you know, for much of your life, the story that you understood about who you were is that you had a Dominican mother and a Chinese father. And their marriage was this, like, transaction for immigration status. And I want to ask you about something you wrote early on in the book, something your mom had told you. She said your father was chosen for that transaction largely because, quote, Chinese was the closest thing to a white man. That sentence like burned into my brain. Can you just tell me what you felt she meant by that? Oh, well, that ties to Dominican Caribbean culture. I should should say colonialism, Mm -hmm. Um, colorism, right? So when the immigrant waves came in from the Caribbean, specifically Dominican Republic from the 50s through the 70s, Dominicans come in all colors. (laughs) So one of the things, though, is that it's communicated throughout the Caribbean and South America because of colonialism, that white is best. And so that was part of, quote unquote, the American dream was to get whiter. And Chinese, why was Chinese the closest thing to a white person in your mom's mind? Well, I think she thought about that mostly because if that's what her father said. Mm Uh, my grandfather, Abuelo, who kind of arranged both his daughters to be married to Chinese men to start their migration into the country. I think in society, especially at that time, there were so many stereotypes which remain to this day. You know, Chinese, Asian, very hardworking, very smart, did very well in business. The so-called model minority myth. Oh, boy, do I hate that phrase. Yes. Model minority. And what a heavy heavy mantle that can be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you were growing up, believing that you had a Chinese father, how Chinese did you actually feel inside? <laughs> That's a funny question. I, you know, I was a kid. I was, um, had a Chinese father for the first 31 years of my life. Right. And even though they were separated, he was very much my father in all the ways that fathers are fathers if they're engaged still in their kids' lives. And we should just explain for our listeners who might be a little confused is because you later on in life learned that the person you thought was your father was not actually your father. Yes, uh, of course. That's But that's only one big reveal of many, right. as you know. Right. <laughs> I don't think it's even the biggest in some ways. It's one of the most painful If only because it is so tied to race and culture. Yeah. Well, the heart of this book, you know, it explores the specific relationship between you and your mom. Like she was the teller of your story, the keeper of the secrets that you would later discover. Can we just about, how would you describe your relationship with your mother as you were growing up? Oh, difficult. In many ways, she made me the parent. I was the oldest I took care of everybody. She had me do a lot of things and treated me like an adult. So of course that's going to cause problems because I was a child. You know, it's like, wow, where did my childhood go? 
Right. Well, she was struggling with her own burdens. Like when she ends up leaving, at the time, your Chinese father, Poppy Wong, and marries a white man, you all move from New York City to New Hampshire. And you call your new white stepfather, Marty, your mother's quote unquote white knight, one who extracted a price from her. Looking back, how would you describe what that price was? Oh, disconnection disconnection. The mantra in those days was, you know, America's a melting pot. And it was all about assimilation. But assimilation into what? Assimilation into white America. What that meant for her, though, was not only did we leave behind a city that we loved so much, but a city filled with people that looked like us. We could just exist and coexist to a place where we knew no one. We had no family. And we stuck out because we were the only non-white people there. She became very isolated, so it extracted a big price from her, wanting to have this American dream. Yeah, I was so struck that the only time she made Dominican food was when Marty was not home. I got the sense that it wasn't allowed, to be honest. Like, this was, we weren't allowed to speak Spanish, and these were his rules. We did not eat, and nor did my mother ever cook Dominican food for any of us, or Chinese food unless he wasn't home. So just in that, you can see like what a shock it was to go to a place where basically everything that defines you is erased, which makes you feel very unmoored. It then eventually becomes even more confusing as you discover the secrets your mother kept from you while she was alive. And I don't want to give away the exact details of what you ultimately discover, but There is this larger question you ask, and that is, how do you let go of your racial identity after you have held on to it for so long? Yes, I say in the book, how do you stop being Chinese? Mm -hmm. You know, it's you can't erase the first 31 years of your life that you had these two parents that happened to be of these races and ethnicities. That was your experience. Now, to discover biologically that I'm not is one thing, and I get that, and I've accepted that, of course. But I don't say now I'm Dominican Chinese. I say I'm Afro-Latina, but I say I was raised Chinese. Mm. Um, And that's all I can say. But I'll tell you, I'm still, it's, it's something very, very difficult because you don't ever want to appropriate. You always just want to respect what's happened and the origins and the truth. And so that's what I try to do is respect the truth of that. You do still keep the name Wong. You still choose today to call yourself Carmen Rita Wong. What story about you do you think your name tells people about yourself today? I'll tell you, I'm proudly a Wong. I was raised a Wong. I had a poppy, Poppy Wong who passed away actually uh, last month. Oh, I'm sorry. So that stuff, it doesn't stop. Also, my brother was a Wong, my older brother. Alex was probably the only biggest fan (laughs) and support I've ever had. So I'm a Wong with him and his daughters. As to what that means to everybody else, I'll tell you the short story. It depends if you want the short story or the long story. <laughs> Let's go for the short story. Today. I usually give the short story to people say, oh, you're Chinese? And I'll say, stepfather. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say. Carmen Rita Wong's new memoir is called Why Didn't You Tell Me? Thank you so much, Carmen, for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, assisting those working from home, and also enabling remote assistance for customers at remotepc.com. And from Focus Features with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Leslie Manville plays a 1950s housekeeper who discovers the dress of her dreams and transforms the house of Dior. In theaters Friday, tickets available now. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is 90.9 WBUR, a beautiful evening ahead. Could have some showers overnight tonight, maybe some thunderstorms as well. Overnight lows just about 68. For tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, lovely day, hot once again, about 88 degrees. Partly sunny on Thursday, some showers for the early part of the day. Sunshine later on, about 82 degrees tops. This is 90.9 WBUR, 84 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today on Capitol Hill, a supporter of former President Donald Trump testifies about why he and others stormed the Capitol January 6th. You know, because everybody was kind of like in the hope that, you know, Vice President Pence was not going to certify the election. It's Tuesday, July 12th, and this is All Things Considered. Today's hearing coming up. Also, Sri Lanka's president and prime minister have said they will resign, but the siege of both officials' residences continues. This is why the protesters are still occupying these premises. They will not leave until these resignations happen. What's behind the crisis in Sri Lanka coming up? A group of men in India have been arrested for putting on bogus professional cricket matches and duping betters in Russia. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. House investigators today laid out in stunning detail the origins of violence at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, using video and live testimony to further describe then-President Donald Trump's involvement. Committee co-chair Liz Cheney saying Trump knew the election was legitimate, but still put out a call to his followers on social media. We will also see today how President Trump summoned a mob to Washington and how the president's stolen election lies provoked that mob to attack the Capitol. One of those who stormed the Capitol, Jason Van Tentenhove, a former spokesman for the far-right group The Oath Keepers, has recanted his views. He says extremist groups are growing ever more dangerous. We've had the potential from Bundy Ranch on. I mean, being boots on the ground at these, these standoffs, and they were standoffs where there were firearms pointed across lines at federal law enforcement agencies. Um, you know, whatever it may be with that particular standoff. Cheney, meanwhile, ended today's hearing with a bombshell saying Trump apparently tried to contact a January 6th witness and noting the Justice Department has been notified. 
Pentagon officials say the U.S. has killed a leader of the Islamic State in Syria in a drone strike. U.S. Central Command saying today Maher al-Aghal was killed and an unidentified senior leader of the group was seriously injured. Strike apparently occurred in a town in northwest Syria near the Turkish border. The Pentagon says there were no civilian casualties, so that has not been immediately confirmed. Mexico's leader in Washington, D.C. today told President Biden now is the time to let migrants come to work in the U.S. legally with visas. He also urged for an expansion of trade within North America. As NPR's Kerry Kahn reports the Mexican leader is hoping for hundreds of thousands of work visas from Biden during their one-day meeting. President Andres Manuel López Obrador took his time in the Oval Office to recall historical moments in the two countries' relationship while also declaring Mexican sovereignty must be respected. He ended what was a 30-minute speech before reporters praising Biden for his treatment of Mexico. The Mexican leader rarely travels outside the country and had boycotted the Summit of the Americas last month in protest over Biden not inviting Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Biden said that despite overhyped headlines, the two have a strong, productive relationship. Mexico wants 300,000 work visas, half for Mexicans and half for Central Americans. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Mexico City. NASA's put out a new batch of images from its powerful James Webb Space Telescope. The views released today include a foamy blue and orange shot of a dying star, five galaxies in a cosmic dance, and a sparkling landscape of baby stars. Yesterday, NASA released an image showing a jumble of distant galaxies that went deeper into the cosmos than humanity has ever seen. The Dow was down 192 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Public safety officials in New Hampshire say there was no emergency at the Seabrook nuclear power plant today, just a false alarm. Sirens around the plant were mistakenly activated today with a recorded audio message indicating there was an emergency there and calling for an evacuation in the area. The plant's owner says the messages were sent out in error during testing of the warning system. Police were able to let residents know it was just a false alarm and nobody was evacuated. An initiative by the Bristol County DA's office has resulted in its second cold case rape arrest. 28-year-old Dylan Ponte of New Bedford is now charged with raping a 16-year-old girl in the city a decade ago. The victim went to the hospital in 2012 and submitted to a rape kit, but it was never tested by the state lab. State officials blame a backlog of work. The DA's office is now using a private lab to test more than 1,100 such kits that went untested. The office made a similar arrest in May. Cases of monkeypox in Massachusetts are increasing. A rare disease can cause fever and rash and last up to four weeks. And local doctors say now is the time for people to be aware of the monkeypox virus, that it's spread to several counties and states. WBR's Maya Schwader has more. The Centers for Disease Control is reporting 42 cases of the monkeypox virus in Massachusetts. That's an increase of 10 since last week. Dr. Benjamin Linus of Boston Medical Center says, on a scale of one to five of how concerned he is, he's at about a three. I think it is time to be aware and to be talking about this. It's not a new virus. It's been around for a long time, but there has, there is this epidemic around the world. Dr. Linus says this variant of the monkeypox virus seems to spread primarily through intimate contact. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Maya Schwader. The Lynn Commuter Rail Station will close in just under two weeks as part of a reconstruction improvement project. The T is moving up the closure that had been planned for next spring to July 25th instead. It's concerned about how quickly the station is deteriorating. The agency says crews will install new elevators, build new platforms, and demolish the parking garage. The T says riders should use buses while the rail station is shut down. It has no estimate for how long the project will take. 
In the forecast, a nice evening coming up. We could have those strong to severe thunderstorms overnight tonight. The highest risk is in northwestern Mass. Gusty winds, maybe some large hail there. Overnight low is about 68. Tomorrow, sunny and hot. 88 degrees for a high. And then Thursday could bring back some showers, partly sunny skies in the afternoon. 84 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. WBUR supporters include CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. An important new witness has told the House Select January 6th committee that Mike Pence acted courageously as vice president by thwarting attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. I think the vice president did the right thing. I have a great deal of respect for Vice President Pence. I think he did a great service to this country. That's former Trump White House general counsel Pat Cipollone. His testimony was heavily featured in today's hearing. The committee looked at how then-President Trump and key allies stoked supporters' anger over his re-election loss and helped turn that rage into a violent attack on the Capitol. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us now. Hi, Claudia. Hey, Ari. Cipollone's been considered one of the most critical witnesses, and last week he made headlines by finally talking to the committee under oath. Today, the committee played many clips from his deposition. What did he say? Right. We saw Cipollone corroborate a lot of evidence already shared with the committee, like his concerns that Trump pushed outlandish theories that he had not lost the election. The committee asked Cipollone about one desperate attempt to seize voting machines. Here's his exchange with the committee investigator. At some point, you have to put up or shut up. That was my view. Why was this, on a broader scale, a bad idea for the country? To have the federal government seize voting machines, that's a terrible idea for And this was part of a larger discussion to try to install a controversial Trump ally. This is Sidney Powell as a special counsel to oversee investigations into such false claims. And Cipollone said he didn't think she should, quote, be appointed to anything. And that was part of this larger pushback by some Trump White House officials against these efforts to overturn the election. Yeah, one theme that has been coming out in these hearings is that Trump and his allies from outside of the White House, like Powell, lawyer Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone and others, pushed conspiracy theories that lit the match and fueled the mob to attack the Capitol. What more did we learn about that? Yes, we heard of one text exchange between former Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale and a key organizer of the rally at the Ellipse. This is Katrina Pearson. And it happened on the night of the January 6th attack. And they were talking about what unfolded in the ties to Trump. Committee Democrat Stephanie Murphy read this text exchange aloud, starting here with a text from Parscale. This week, I feel guilty for helping him win. Katrina Pearson responded, you did what you felt right at the time, and therefore it was right. Mr. Parscale added, yeah, but a woman is dead. And yeah, if I was Trump and I knew my rhetoric killed someone. When Ms. Pearson replied, it wasn't the rhetoric, Mr. Pascal said, Katrina, yes, it was. And this was part of what the committee presented today that included details of wit- from witnesses and others, other evidence who said that Trump's rhetoric is what fueled this mob. And, for example, his messages on social media were essentially a call to arms. 
Now, the Republican vice chair of the committee, Liz Cheney, ended this hearing on an explosive note saying that Trump has reached out to a witness and the panel has referred the matter to the Justice Department. What does that tell you about where this is likely going? Right. Yes. The panel has kept a tight hold on witness names for today's hearing, for example. And they said we heard from aides who said this was due to new security concerns. And this follows other cases of potential witness tampering. Cheney also shared some examples of possible concerns there in a previous hearing. So we know the panel wants to hold another hearing next week focused on Trump's inaction during the attack. And Cheney previewed more of Cipollone's testimony that we expect to see there. But that all said, these new security concerns will likely shape how witness testimony is shared with the public in the future. It's NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you. Thank you much. At least 34 people are dead after Russian missiles struck two apartment blocks in a town in Ukraine's Donetsk province this week. Russia has intensified its attacks in the east as it tries to consolidate control over the entire Donbass region. To help people evacuate, the Ukrainian Rail Service has added a special line from the Donbass. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. The train from the Donbass pulls into the central eastern town of Dnipro for a 45-minute stop each evening. It crosses Ukraine from east to west once a day, every day, bringing people to safety. Lydia Konstantinovna. 83-year-old Lydia Konstantinovna Havrilenko steps from the train looking frail and lost. She's holding her most precious possessions in two plastic bags by her side. It came with two cats. Why are you wait? Did you wait so long to leave? How can I leave my nest? It's very hard. It's uh, the one option is bad. This other option is bad. Haverdenko says she thought she could hold on in the town where she spent her whole life, but the shelling became unbearable. She made it out with her 52-year-old handicapped son. With no other family, they have no idea where they'll go or if they'll ever return. The sweltering train is packed with mothers, children, and elderly people. Hello. 65-year-old Svetlana Yefremova invites us to sit in her compartment and talk. She fled shelling in her town of Bakhmut with her daughter and five grandkids. They're heading to family in central Ukraine. Even though there's been a frozen conflict in the east for the last eight years, she said she never thought it would break into full-scale war. No, of course not. And even uh, when uh, there were talks about war, I laughed and I said, like, what? War with Russia? It is impossible. And now I'm angry with myself. She says before they lived a normal life. They had freedom and their children were happy. But in 2014, Russian President Vladimir Putin began to exploit divisions over the pro-democracy Maidan revolution in Kyiv. Putin took Crimea from Ukraine and stirred up Russian separatist sentiment in the Donbass. 
Yefrimova says Russian TV propaganda was like poison. She says many people in her town still believe it, despite what's happening to them. It is impossible to say anything for them. They really believe that Russian soldiers uh, don't sell, don't shoot, uh, don't kill. But I say them like, uh, you have eyes, you have ears. Keeping order on the platform, railway worker Valery Garbachuk says there were always divisions between Western and Eastern Ukrainians, but this war has brought the country together. When the train arrives in Lviv, locals come out to greet passengers with hot dumplings. And all along the 24-hour, 750-mile trip, Garbachuk tries to reassure them. Yeah, we try to stay positive, to support people. For example, the elderly lady and gentlemen are traveling, and I say to them, like, you will come back home soon. Putin kaput, Ukraine will win, everyone will come back to their homes, everything will be good, everything will be Ukraine. 78-year-old Vladimir Bikiko describes what's happening in his town of Slovyansk. They're bombing all the time, in the afternoon, at night, in the morning. He says all this is Ukraine's fault, too. Putin gave us ample warning, he says, and we should have been ready for this invasion. Bikitko says Russia will never stop bullying Ukraine until Putin and all those bastards in the Kremlin are killed. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. The sport of cricket is a pretty big deal in India. In the air, Saiki Shaw, Saiki Shaw holds on and Harik Pandya strikes hard length. Well, now, four men trying to cash in on the sport's popularity have been arrested. Indian police are accusing these men of staging fixed professional cricket matches in order to dupe betters in Russia. Okay, so here's how it worked, according to the authorities. The gang leased a dusty plot of land in western India and hired a few dozen local farm workers to pose as athletes and umpires. They even teed up a bogus announcer to deliver play-by-play commentary and piped in fake crowd noise. That boisterous crowd you hear was nowhere to be seen because the gang's cameras stayed fixed on the cricket pitch as those farm workers we mentioned, now in uniform, shuffled about. The gang streamed the fixed matches on YouTube and took bets through Telegram, mostly from unsuspecting Russian gamblers. And if you're wondering how anyone could be fooled by all of this, well, one YouTube commenter has since said, quote, this is a remarkable reenactment of a cricket game. And the tournament, I mean, it did reach quarterfinals before local police caught on. There was one small detail that might have tipped off diehard fans of Indian cricket. Officials say the elaborate scam started three weeks after the real Indian Premier League action ended. So anyone paying a bit more attention to the game could have spotted the ruse.
The BA5 subvariant is now the dominant form of the coronavirus in the U.S., and the federal government is planning for a variant-specific booster in the fall. But in the world's poorest countries, many people still haven't been able to get a single shot. And the global health lead of USAID says his agency is running out of funds to bring vaccines, tests, and treatments to countries that need them. The outlook for the global south on today's episode of our daily news podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. In uh, Coming up on WBUR, the Postal Service plans to replace about 160,000 of its delivery trucks. Why will only a small fraction, though, be electric? That story is still ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com slash careers. Stocks stepped back today on Wall Street. The Dow fell 0.62% or 193 points. It closed at 30,981. S&P and NASDAQ lost nearly a full percent. The S&P finished at 38.19. The NASDAQ closed at 11,265. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. A New York-based solar developer is joining forces with a Florida-based investment firm to create solar projects in Massachusetts. Sincarfa Capital and Rosemar Management are investing $100 million into community solar and energy storage projects in the state and other parts of New England. It's not saying which cities and towns the projects will be in. Sincarfa says the project will save customers money and support the power grid. In the forecast, could have some showers overnight tonight, about 68 for lows. Sunshine tomorrow, highs about 88. In the Boston area right now, it is 84 degrees at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Roe is no longer the law of the land after the Supreme Court decision now known as Dobbs. And today, the Senate Judiciary Committee heard testimony about the consequences of that ruling. Here's Denise Harley, Senior Counsel and Director for Alliance Defending Freedom. This is an opportunity, finally, that states have had the shackles removed from Roe's judicial power grab. Senators, I come before you tired, frustrated, and angry. And that was Dr. Colleen McNicholas. She is an OBGYN and the chief medical officer at Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and Southwest Missouri. Dr. McNicholas joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So you work in a state where abortion is now banned, except in cases of medical emergency. So are you concerned that medical providers like yourself could now face criminal or other legal consequences in the course of just helping people with their health care decisions? We've been hearing from OBGYNs across the state 
who are seeing folks for pregnancy-related complications, miscarriage management, ectopic pregnancy, who are caught in an impossible situation where they're trying to navigate how sick is sick enough before they can take care of patients, where they're waiting for hospital lawyers to give them permission to provide what they know to be the appropriate medical care. The Dobbs decision will have impacts to public health outcomes that we won't even fully understand for decades. I mean, for you personally, is there a situation that has already happened in the days since this trigger law went into effect where you as a doctor were talking to a patient and you thought to yourself, okay, if I give any more advice at this point, I might be facing criminal liability? My professional responsibility to provide ethical and equitable care, which includes making sure that patients know what all of their options are, is still a cornerstone of my medical practice. And so I'm going to continue to stand up for patients and to make sure they have not only the information, but also have accessibility to the care that they need. When you were asked today by Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas if you condemn the violence against anti-abortion activists and crisis pregnancy centers, you said yes. But can you tell us a little more about how you answered Senator Cotton's question? Certainly, I condemn violence on all levels. But I thought it was incredibly important to lift up that abortion providers, escorts, volunteers have been subject to harassment and violence for years And so although I appreciate the senator's outrage at increased violence, I also would appreciate them acknowledging the fact and the reality that abortion providers have been targeted by this type of violence for years. Do you personally feel like your life is in danger? You know, today I still feel comfortable and safe providing the care that I provide, but that doesn't mean that it's not a continuous conversation with my family and the people who support us. Well, in terms of state level, I mean, there are people on the other side of this issue from where you stand who would say to you, look, abortion is now an issue for states to decide. And the voters of Missouri have made their decision. And if that's the case, Dr. McNicholas, do you think that there is any room at the state level to reopen this conversation about abortion access in Missouri? You know, I think the return to what I believe is equitable access for Missourians to abortion care, it's going to require a long-term strategy. And so now is the time for us to pivot and start holding our elected officials accountable to what the values truly are for Missourians. And I believe that Missourians, like folks across the country, do support access to abortion. That is Dr. Colleen McNicholas, OBGYN and Chief Medical Officer at Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and Southwest Missouri. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. The Postal Service plans to replace its aging fleet of gas-guzzling trucks with new gas-guzzling trucks and a few electric vehicles. WHYY's Susan Phillips reports 16 states have sued to block that plan. This hulking white postal truck in Philadelphia is among more than 140,000 on the road that get an average of 8.2 miles to the gallon. It has no air conditioning, no airbags, no anti-lock brakes, and it's likely more than 30 years old. Mike Foster is with the American Postal Workers Union, which represents the mechanics who fix the trucks. Some days it's an exercise in futility. Other days, it's an exercise where you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You often find that the mechanics and the technicians are taking parts from one vehicle in order to keep another vehicle in service. Everyone agrees the postal fleet needs to be replaced. 
Foster says electric vehicles would cut air pollution, especially in places already suffering from bad air quality, like poor communities and communities of color. Charging stations at postal facilities could also provide a national network for public use and at the same time help the Postal Service with additional revenue. We believe that the uh, electric vehicles are going to certainly be the wave of the future. Now, the question is, is that how soon will the Postal Service come into the future? The Postal Service signed a contract last year for 165,000 trucks. The majority would be gasoline-powered. After planning to purchase just 10 percent electric, Democratic members of Congress pushed back. So it upped that number to 20 percent electric vehicles. Still, those members and climate activists say the majority should be electric. Lennox Yearwood from the Hip Hop Caucus led a protest outside the Postal Service headquarters in D.C. in April. The time is now to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. The Postal Service's Victoria Stevens told members of Congress this spring that switching to EVs is too expensive. We found that the benefits are not enough to overcome the higher costs over the 20-year life of the vehicle. But the Environmental Protection Agency called the Postal Service's environmental review of the plan seriously deficient. And a government accountability office says the service based its analysis on flawed assumptions underestimating fuel costs on the one hand, while overestimating the cost of electric batteries and electric vehicle maintenance. Led by Trump supporter and Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, the Postal Service didn't even consider emissions reductions as a cost saver. Scott Huckberg is an attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. I think what we've seen is that Louis DeJoy is concerned about cutting costs above all else, and that can lead to a skewed view when you have to take into account the longer-term impacts of these decisions. The Center for Biological Diversity, together with the Sierra Club, sued the Postal Service. It's one of three pending lawsuits. Hochberg says the Postal Service didn't even begin to conduct its environmental impact statement until after it had already signed a contract for the vehicles something he says is a clear violation of federal environmental laws. The consequences of this are huge. The current plan locks in pollution to every American community for decades. Huckberg says an accurate environmental review would show economic benefits for purchasing 95 percent electric vehicles. The lawsuit argues for the court to stop payments on the new vehicle contract until a new review is done. Recently, Postmaster General DeJoy said he would file an amended environmental impact statement, indicating the Postal Service may be open to ordering more EVs. For NPR News, I'm Susan Phillips in Philadelphia. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, what's behind the crisis in Sri Lanka that may see the resignations of the president and prime minister whose personal residences are under siege. 
Checking sports, Southpaw Chris Sale makes a season debut tonight for the Red Sox. The seven-time All-Star will face Tampa Bay Rays pitcher Cy Young Award winner Corey Kluber. The game at Tropicana Field starts at 7:10. And Sox player J.D. Martinez will be part of the American League All-Star roster after all. Martinez has been tapped to replace an Astros player who's out with an injury. This will be Martinez's fifth All-Star game. He will join fellow Sox Rafael Devers and Xander Bogarts in the game in L.A. one week from today. It's 5:30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures, 617-524-3900. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Now that the deal is done and finalized, Elon Musk is saying that he's going to walk away. The question for Twitter is, what are they going to do about it? And that is about to get really messy. I'm Estet Herndon, in for Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. That's The Daily, tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The House Select Committee held its seventh public hearing today into the attack on the U.S. Capitol 18 months ago, this time focusing on the link between then-President Trump and the extremist groups who stormed the Capitol building, groups like the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, and QAnon. Meanwhile, during closing arguments, Republican Representative Liz Cheney revealed that Trump himself attempted to call one of the panel's witnesses. Here's how she described the incident. President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us, and this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Cheney says the panel investigating the attack on the Capitol will take any effort to influence testimony very seriously. In Oklahoma, after banning virtually all abortions in the state, some lawmakers there are turning their focus to sex education. From member station KGOU, Catherine Sweeney has more. Some conservative members proposed a study on sex education in Oklahoma. They raised concerns about efficacy and about whether schools can overrule parents who don't want their children subjected to the content. Oklahoma law doesn't require schools to offer sex education. Districts can choose to teach it, and if they do, they must provide parents written notice. Parents can then opt out. Comprehensive sex education has proven time and again to lower pregnancy and STD rates among teens. Oklahoma continually ranks among the top five states in the nation for teen pregnancy. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Sweeney in Oklahoma City. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street. The Dow was down about six-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard University's plan to build offices, labs, a hotel, and apartment buildings in Alston are moving forward. Today, the city announced the university and community representatives in Alston have reached an agreement that will allow Boston's planning and development agency to approve phase one of the plan. One key tenet of today's agreement is that one quarter of the developer's housing will be set aside as affordable units. That's an increase from Harvard's previous offer of 17%. 
Three of four juveniles accused of attacking a 20-year-old musician with local band Young Other outside South Station last month have been released into the custody of their parents while they await trial. Suffolk DA Kevin Hayden calls the attack vicious and unprovoked. The fourth suspect is also a juvenile and will be arraigned next month. The band canceled dates in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York because of the severity of the man's injuries. Local gun control advocates and members of law enforcement are expressing hope that new federal gun laws will help reduce gun violence. Middlesex Sheriff Peter Katujin attended a White House ceremony this week to mark the passage of the legislation last month. The law expands background checks and encourages states to pass laws to remove weapons from people deemed the court deems a threat. Katujin says Massachusetts already has relatively strict gun laws, but the federal legislation will still have an effect here. The fact is that many of the guns that they trace back to being used in crimes here in Massachusetts are purchased legally and illegally from outside of Massachusetts. That's why this legislation is so important for Massachusetts as well. Katujan says the state will also likely benefit from the new federal funding for education and mental health programs to combat gun violence. This is WBUR. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with A Place for Me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant figurative paintings, icaboston.org. Sunshine today giving way to an overcast night tonight. Possible thunderstorms tonight, lows about 69. Then for tomorrow should be sunny and warm, just about 88 degrees. Some showers moving in for the early part of the day Thursday, then partly sunny skies later. 84 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Sri Lanka, protesters who spent the weekend occupying the president's palace have now entered and torched the prime minister's mansion. People have been chanting this slogan for months. They're telling President Gotabaya Rajapaksa to go home, back to California, where he lived as a dual American citizen. The president says he'll officially resign tomorrow. Marlon Arya Singha has covered the protests since they began. He's an editor at Himmel South Asian magazine based in Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. The images from these protests uh, at the presidential palace have just been incredible over the weekend. We've seen Sri Lankans wrestling on the president's bed, cooking meals in his kitchen, playing songs on his piano and swimming in the pool. Is there one scene from the last few days that you will never forget? Well, all those scenes combined, I think, uh, has been really surreal. I haven't seen this much of people congregated in one place and showing their dissent and united in that, you know, in this common goal of showing dissent against uh, the current government and the president and the PM, that is something that I have never seen before, and I, I probably never forget it. 
Do you know where the president actually is right now? There were reports that he tried to fly out of Sri Lanka last night. Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, uh, it's like where's Waldo and we are trying to look uh, for where, I mean, we've been getting a lot of rumors of where he is, but there are no confirmed reports of where the president is. Hmm. But we do know today morning, his brother uh, and the president, they tried to flee the country and they were stopped at the immigration by the by the officers who refused to process their documents. And of course, uh, there were other passengers who also uh, refused to admit them in, into the into the flight. So that was the report that we have got on the you know in the morning. Hmm. Do people believe him that he will resign tomorrow as he has pledged to do? I think this is why the protesters are still occupying these premises. And they have stated very clearly that they will not leave until these resignations happen, until the PM and the president step down. And I think it's because of this distrust that they are still occupying these spaces and waiting for the resignations to be made official. Hmm. Let's go back to those scenes of protesters. When you talk to people in the crowd and ask why they've come out, what's the most common answer? When you talk to protesters, and I, I would say these are Sri Lankans rather than protesters. These are Sri Lankans who came from all over the island, and we are currently undergoing a, a severe fuel shortage. So their public transport is completely crippled. The trains that were supposed to run, they had refused to operate the trains. So the protesters, they went and expressed their displeasure to the station masters and got the station master to operate the train. So Mm. it was remarkable to see that. And when you say, why are you making that journey? Why expend all this effort to be there? What do they tell you? Yeah, I think everyone felt that this was a very significant moment in the history of Sri Lanka. And that's why these people have come from around the island to be at the, the main protest site to express their dissent in a unified voice. How likely is a new government to be able to address their concerns? I think Sri Lankans are pondering over this. I think Sri Lankans understand that the next six months are going to be very, very difficult. And we need to be very resilient in order to get through these uh, these six months until an IMF deal is agreed and is negotiated. But I think they also want some form of or some semblance of political stability. And this is what has been missing for the last two years. That's Marlon Arya Singha, editor at Himmel South Asian magazine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Last September, the remnants of Hurricane Ida dropped unprecedented rainfall on several eastern states, killing dozens of people. Eleven of them were Queens residents who died when their basement apartments flooded. The storm spotlighted the dangers of illegal basement apartments, home to an estimated 100,000 New York City residents. And now, with another hurricane season underway, Gwen Hogan from member station WNYC reports that tenants of these unregulated apartments still face many of the same dangers they did last fall. Last September, I met 19-year-old Litsi Gutierrez on her front stoop. She was sifting through scrapbooks of family photos and dabbing them with a paper towel. Yeah, it's been pretty rough. Cleaning. Her family had lived for a decade in an unregulated basement apartment in Queens. During Ida, floodwaters filled it nearly to the ceiling and they narrowly made it out alive. They lost everything. It's very hard to see a home. We, we grew up 
and getting destroyed, you know? In the months since, the family has moved into the apartment upstairs. And on a recent steamy afternoon, visible signs of the flood were long gone. <laughs> Hi, Queenie. Gutierrez says since they moved upstairs, her fear of storms is fading. To be honest, we don't even like worry about it no more. But the basement apartment that flooded isn't empty. New tenants have moved in. Nearly all of the basement apartments where people died during Ida were illegally converted. Those kinds of apartments often don't have emergency exits or proper windows to make them safe. But city and state officials say evicting people isn't realistic. Instead, they're focused on legalizing them and making them safer. It really felt like there was going to be a sea change when Ida hit. Rebecca Morris, a housing advocate with the Pratt Center for Community Development, says progress on that effort has stalled. This year, the state did set aside money to help landlords bring basement apartments up to code. But a companion bill giving the city permission to legalize those units didn't pass. So most landlords won't be able to tap into that money. Here's Morris again. I mean, I'm just completely disappointed at the, the just like the the response um, and how quickly people seem to forget and move on. Governor Kathy Hochul supports the basement legalization bill and says she'll push for it again next session. Mayor Eric Adams also supports it, but says without it, the city won't start working out the details. In the meantime, he says some things have changed. Our Office of Emergency Management, they're on top of this. And we're going to make sure that we're prepared in this coming season. There are new emergency warnings for basement residents and updated flood maps. More sandbags and flood barriers are available. And hundreds of sensors are being added to better monitor flooding in real time. Back in Queens. The new tenant of Litsi Gutierrez's old basement apartment says she had no idea about the flood before she moved in. Her name is Nancy Valero. Gutierrez warned her shortly after her family unpacked. And they considered moving again, but couldn't afford it. She's not sure what she'll do if the apartment floods again. She jokes, they'll wear life jackets to sleep in case they wake up swimming. It scares us, she says. For NPR News, I'm Gwen Hogan in New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Live music is largely back after a long hiatus over the pandemic. The lack of gigs was especially tough for up-and-coming musicians who live in smaller cities and towns. But for at least one country rocker from the rural Northwest, Margot Silker, the pandemic may have leveled the playing field. NPR's Kirk Sigler sent this profile. Margot Silker's songs bring listeners to the West's more forgotten places, like the 99 freeway through California farm country. Well, I cross your mind down 99. Wouldn't think of me on your way back to Tehachapi. 
California native, Silker has since rambled up to Eastern Oregon and Washington, her husband's a ranch hand, and her first full-length record is full of tales about the Basque sheepherders who once immigrated to this corner of the West. The songs are a crowd favorite at live shows. Being in a rural place, it's an opportunity to see how other people live and meet them where they are and offer this thing to them that they appreciate. Well, during the pandemic, Silker did odd jobs around the ranch and played live for the cowboys and veterinarians. And she wrote a lot. Everyone was remote and virtual, and being where she was may have actually boosted her career. So many people are out there concentrated in these big cities, and it shows in their writing it becomes in itself homogenous. I've never felt like I could move to Nashville or LA, New York. Nothing about it would feed my art. And she's still getting noticed. Seattle indie rocker Sarah Cahoon is helping produce her second LP, and this summer she scored a touring gig with Texas singer-songwriter Hayes Carl. Silker is part of a small but growing trend of musicians coming out of the pandemic who are deciding to stay where they are. The consumer at this point in time has anything available to them that they want. And if it's good, it's good. It doesn't matter if it's from Billings, Montana, or if it's from New York City. If it's good, people are going to listen to it. Sean Lynch manages a rock club in Montana. And this is exactly what I talk to my artists about, is if you are actually interested in touring and you're actually interested in going out doing that, you will never be able to do that if you live in Los Angeles or Nashville or New York because you're going to be constantly working all the time just to pay your rent. And touring is make or break right now for artists. On the road, Margot Silker has been thinking a lot about how her art can dispel stereotypes about rural life. Interviewed at a festival in Boise recently, she said, you might not expect it, but there are lots of women in ranching. I've been out at branding crews that have more women than, like, music festivals book. And it's One like, foot in both worlds, so Silker is troubled seeing all the division in America right now, where really people just don't talk to one another. There's a farmer we know steps into the tavern where the bright light sees the mine. The band gets an encore. The farmer, stiff, poor, and raw, getting closer this time. Margot Silker bridging the urban rural divide through music. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Boise. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Join us at City Space Tuesday, July 19th for an evening of conversation and performances to celebrate Boston's young artists. Tickets are free. Go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 
Coming up on All Things Considered, the new U.S. Poet Laureate on the moment she got the call and what it means to hold the position. Sunshine continues for a while longer, could give way to some showers this evening and tonight, maybe some thunderstorms before 11 o'clock, hail in some areas, overnight lows about 68. Tomorrow should make it to about 88 degrees for a high with mostly sunny skies. And then partly sunny on Thursday, some showers for the early part of the day. Partly sunny skies later on, 82 degrees tops. 84 now in the Boston area at 549. WBUR supporters include Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where specialists in your type of cancer create personalized care plans just for you. Learn more at youhaveus.org. And Volante Farms in Needham. Locally grown flowering annuals, perennials, and shrubs for a summer landscape refresher. Greenhouse hours at volantefarms.com. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis criticizes what he claims is taught in public schools. Following woke indoctrination in our schools, that is a road to ruin for this country. He set limits in teaching about race and sexual orientation. So why do teachers say he's fostering a hostile environment? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Emmy nominations are out today. And if you guessed that Succession would be all over them, you would be correct. Ted Lasso and The White Lotus followed closely behind. And Linda Holmes, co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, is here to give us more details. Hey, Linda. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so let's start with the fun stuff. Comedies. What do we have here? Sure. So some past comedy series nominees are repeating, including Curb Your Enthusiasm and Barry on HBO, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon, Hacks on HBO Max, What We Do in the Shadows, which is FX's vampire comedy, and Ted Lasso on Apple TV, which won last year. But there are a couple of new entries, including Only Murders in the Building, the Hulu show with uh, Steve Martin, (laughs) Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, and also Abbott Elementary on ABC, which was created by Quinta Brunson and was a, a real bright spot for a lot of people this year. And what's going on over in the drama categories? Right. So also some repeats there. Ozark and Stranger Things from Netflix, Better Call Saul on AMC and HBO's Succession. Um, but there's still some a lot of new action over there, too. Euphoria on HBO was nominated, as was Yellow Jackets on Showtime. Netflix certainly had one of the most buzzy shows of the year with Squid Game. They got a nomination for that. And Severance, which is a very offbeat series that has a lot of admirers, myself included, got (laughs) a nomination. That one is on Apple TV. Okay, very nice. Well, something I want to know is when we're looking at these numbers, like we got 25 nominations for Succession, 20 for Ted Lasso, 20 for The White Lotus, which is the limited HBO series. I mean, like, how do these nomination totals get so high? Are these shows, like, that good? Yeah, well, in the case of all three of those shows, the numbers get big because they have ensemble casts. So, for instance, Session has 25 nominations and 14 of them are acting nominations between Uh lead, supporting, and guest categories. If you compare that to something like Stranger Things, it has 13 nominations, but nobody in the cast was nominated. Same with Ted Lasso. 20 nominations and 10 for acting. White Lotus, a little less, but 20 nominations and eight for acting. So a lot of times it has to do with the size of a a very good cast. (laughs) Okay. So I know that there are also a lot of nominations for series that were based on like real events this year, right? 
Right, absolutely. The dropout, which is all about Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos scandal inventing Anna, which is about Anna Delvey, the so-called fake heiress, <laughs> Dope Sick, which is about the opioid epidemic, and Pam and Tommy, which is about one of the first big celebrity sex tapes. Those are all nominated in this very competitive limited series category with The White Lotus. And what about you, Linda? Like, are there any nominations that made you especially happy this year? There were uh, Ray Seahorn nominated for playing Kim on Better Call Saul, J. Smith Cameron nominated for playing Jerry on Succession, Natasha Rothwell, who's wonderful, nominated for playing Belinda on The White Lotus, and Cheryl Lee Ralph, who I have been enjoying on television since the late 1970s, got her first Emmy nomination for Abbott Elementary, which is overdue and, and awesome. That is so awesome. All right. Well, the Emmys will be airing in September, and we'll see how all these races pan out. That is NPR's Linda Holmes. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you, Elsa. Today, the Library of Congress announced a new poet laureate, Ada Limon. Our friend from the world of poetry, Tess Taylor, has known Limon for decades, and so the two hopped on the line, and Taylor began by asking Limon what it means to be poet laureate today. You've just been called into this position of national prominence in a moment when we're really just sort of inarguably in a painful period in America. And I'm wondering... What can poetry offer a divided country? Yeah, I think that it's really important to remember that even in this particularly hard moment, divided moment, poetry can really help us reclaim our humanity. And I think it's important right now at a time when so many of us have been numbed uh, to trauma, to grief, to chaos. And so many of us have had to compartmentalize in order to live our lives. And we've had to kind of forget conveniently that we are thinking, feeling, grieving, (laughs) emotional beings. And I think through poetry, I think we can actually remember that on the other side of that is also contentment, joy, a little peace now and again, and that those are all part of the same spectrum. And without one, we don't have the other. And I think poetry is the place where we can go to break open. But to have that experience, I really truly believe, helps us remember that we're human. And reclaiming our humanity seems like it's really essential right now. Well, speaking of that, do you have a Poet Laureate project in mind yet? The intention I have around building a project is to see if I can do something that helps us not only reconnect with our humanity, but helps us repair our relationship with the natural world. Um, I think so often we forget that our relationship to the earth is reciprocal. And I think we've not only felt very disconnected from one another, from our communities, but also from the planet. And that's how harm is done. And so I think that I would really love to figure out how you know, through poetry, we might be able to repair that relationship with the earth, with nature. I love that. In your hands, poetry feels like a real social tool of healing. That's that's yeah. fantastic and very hopeful. Um, Ada, this brings us to the moment where I get to ask you to read a poem. Will you read that wonderful poem about a groundhog from the beginning of The Hurting Kind? Yes, I'd be honored. There's so much I could say about this poem, but I think maybe it's better if we just hear it. Give me this. I thought it was the neighbor's cat, 
back to clean the clock of the fledgling robins low in their nest stuck in the dense hedge by the house but what came was much stranger a liquidity moving all muscle and bristle a groundhog slippery and wattle thieving my tomatoes still green in the morning shade I watched her munch and stand on her haunches, taking such pleasure in the watery bites. Why am I not allowed delight? A stranger writes to request my thoughts on suffering, barbed wire pulled out of the mouth as if demanding that I kneel to the trap of coiled spikes used in warfare and fencing. Instead, I watch the groundhog more closely and a sound escapes me. A small spasm of joy I did not imagine when I woke. She is a funny creature and earnest, and she is doing what she can to survive. Thank you so much for that, Ada, and congratulations again on this tremendous moment. Thank you. Thank you, Tess. Just announced Poet Laureate Ada Limon talking with Poet Tess Taylor. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Leslie Manville plays a 1950s housekeeper who discovers the dress of her dreams and transforms the House of Dior in Theaters Friday. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. This is 90.9 WBUR, a nice evening. Then we could have strong to severe thunderstorms tonight. The risk is highest in northwestern Mass. Temperatures about 68 degrees tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and hot, around 88 for high. This is WBUR. It's 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol hears testimony about former President Trump's state of mind just prior to the insurrection. He did look to the staff and ask for um, ideas of how um, that we could make the rhinos do the right thing. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More from today's hearing just ahead. Also, two and a half years into the COVID-19 pandemic, only 20% of people on the continent of Africa are fully vaccinated. 
we have seen that the high-income countries of the world have clearly prioritized themselves but forgotten that this pandemic is affecting all of us. More on the vaccine challenges facing African nations coming up. And organizers in Michigan have submitted 750,000 signatures for a ballot initiative to enshrine reproductive rights in the state constitution. It's 601. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The January 6th House Committee continued its hearings in Washington today. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports the committee discussed a tweet then-President Donald Trump sent December 19th, rallying supporters to a Washington protest that spread like wildfire among far-right groups. Hours after Trump's tweet, the head of the Florida Oath Keepers posted a Facebook message saying the group would work together with the Three Percenters and Proud Boys to other extremist groups. The committee revealed an encrypted chat called FOS, Friends of Roger Stone, a Trump associate, that included leaders of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, along with the organizer of Trump's rally held on January 6th at the Ellipse. The committee is also making the case that people close in Trump's orbit were involved with these groups. They point to former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn being photographed with members of the Oath Keepers outside the Capitol six days before Flynn was in an Oval Office meeting about overturning the election. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. As the BA5 COVID variant spreads fast, U.S. health officials are saying stay the course. They say vaccines and treatments work, as NPR's Ping Wong explains. A new COVID variant is taking hold. BA5 is more transmissible than past variants. People infected just a few months ago are getting sick again. Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID coordinator, says the toolkit the government put together still works. We have all the capabilities we need to protect the American people. Vaccines and boosters, treatments, tests, masks, ventilation, and so much more. At a press conference, health officials urged people to get vaccines and booster shots now to head off their personal risks in the summer surge. They expect a new booster, which protects against the BA5 strain, to be available in the fall. Ping Huang, NPR News. Tonight, President Biden heads to the Mideast for his first trip there since entering the White House. NPR's Asma Khalid has more. The president's main goal is to maintain stability in the region. Jake Sullivan is Biden's national security advisor. This trip will reinforce a vital American role in a strategically consequential region. And also, it will reinforce that our role is different today than it was 20 years ago on the eve of the war in Iraq. The president's first stop is Israel. He'll also visit the West Bank in an attempt to renew a relationship with Palestinians that was severely strained under the Trump administration. Then Biden will head to Saudi Arabia. He has said his goal is to reorient, not rupture, relations with a country that has been a strategic partner for 80 years. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Twitter has sued Elon Musk to force him to abide by his agreement to buy the company for $44 billion. It sets Twitter and Musk up for a lengthy, expensive, and high-stakes battle. Musk has accused Twitter of not giving him the information needs to evaluate the prevalence of fake accounts. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal judge has thrown out most of the claims former Boston Police Commissioner Dennis White filed against the city after he was fired. Among the 11 claims tossed out were White's accusation that the city violated the state Civil Rights Act and breached an implied contract. 
White's attorney issued a statement this afternoon saying he's pleased three of his claims are being allowed to move forward, including defamation and violation of due process. The city placed White on leave two days after his appointment as police commissioner and ultimately fired him after former domestic abuse allegations against him resurfaced. He denies any wrongdoing. A state-appointed panel says more funding, better incentives, and reliable transportation are needed to address dropping enrollment in rural Massachusetts schools. The Rural Schools Commission was formed in 2019. It finalized a set of recommendations for the state this morning, which includes $60 million in funding for rural districts. Representative Natalie Blay of Sunderland is a commission leader. She says the changes will help the success of schools and communities. You know, having a, a, a strong local school really can help to bring people to the region. We have to ensure that our schools are strong. Blaze says no po- says population decline, lower wages, and fewer tax dollars are factors in dropping enrollment. A Boston Biotech says it has developed a way to use gene editing technology to lower a person's heart attack risk. WBR's Fausto Menard has more. It's called base editing, an updated version of the gene editing tool CRISPR. Say Catharason, CEO of Verve Therapeutics, calls it surgery without a scalpel. Last week, in a phase one clinical trial, he says his company successfully edited the DNA of a person predisposed to heart disease, the leading cause of death in the world. It's really the first step in a journey, hopefully, to where in a few years we'll have this kind of once and done medicine for the treatment of heart attack. The intravenous treatment is designed to be a one and done procedure, though more clinical trials and regulatory approval are needed before it might become more widely available. That's not likely to happen before the end of the decade. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. A Massachusetts man has been sentenced to more than a decade behind bars after he admitted to driving to Michigan in an attempt to kidnap an ex-girlfriend. Prosecutors say 49-year-old Damon Burke of Vineyard Haven had not seen the woman for about two decades when he was pulled over in a suburban in suburban Detroit last year. Police say they found zip ties, brass knuckles, and a stun gun inside Burke's car. They intercepted him before Burke was able to apprehend the woman. In the forecast, look for some showers this evening and overnight tonight. Could have some thunderstorms before midnight. Hail in some areas, lows about 68. And tomorrow about 88 degrees, mostly sunny skies. Partly sunny Thursday, showers in the early part of the day, about 82 tops. 84 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Former President Trump planned in advance to direct protesters to march to the Capitol on January 6th, even when his aides said they worried about the extreme rhetoric they were hearing. That is the latest allegation from the Congressional Select Committee investigating the Capitol riot. The committee focused on a Trump tweet in December 2020, calling for a, quote, wild protest on January 6th. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland said that tweet was a kind of call to arms for Trump supporters who started making plans online. Many shared plans and violent threats. One post encouraged others to come with body armor, knuckles, shields, bats, pepper spray, whatever it takes. All of those were used on the 6th. Well, NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach has been following today's hearing and joins us now. Hey, Tom. 
Hey, Elsa. Okay, so this hearing today, it covered a lot of ground with witnesses both in and out of the White House. And I want to start with the people inside the Trump administration. What more did we learn today about the run-up to January 6th? Well, throughout these hearings, we've heard from a large number of top Trump advisors who repeatedly told Trump the election was not stolen, there's no evidence of widespread fraud, and that by mid-December, those legal challenges they had raised, which they had lost repeatedly, those legal challenges were over. Now we can add to that list of officials who told Trump that White House counsel Pat Cipollone, he testified with the committee on Friday, and we saw clips where he agreed that Trump should concede. Right. And then despite that, Trump continued to pursue these baseless claims about the election. And some of those claims were being pushed by outside advisors, right, like Rudy Giuliani. What did we learn about the efforts of those people on the outside? The committee really focused on this one day, December 18th, 2020, and a meeting that took place in the Oval Office. On on one side were Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, and Rudy Giuliani. They were pushing some of these really far-out election theories, some involving Venezuela. There was discussion of seizing voting machines at one point. Now, on the other side were White House lawyers like Pat Cipollone and others who thought these ideas were essentially ridiculous or even illegal in the case of the voting machines idea. According to testimony we heard, it became a six-hour screaming match between both sides, which a White House aide described as, quote, unhinged. Here's the testimony from White House lawyer Eric Hirschman. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely out there. What they were proposing... I thought was nuts. Okay, well, now we know the Trump administration ultimately did not pursue seizing voting machines. So what actually came out of that meeting? Well, even though some top advisors like Pat Cipollone, Eric Hirschman, said the election was over, Trump continued to try to overturn it. And the very next morning, December 19th, Trump sent a tweet calling for his supporters to come to a big protest on January 6th. Quote, we be there, we'll be wild. We heard how that led to planning from a wide variety of extremists like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and some of the rhetoric from them and others described how January 6th might be like the new 1776, an American revolution. In response to that, a Trump spokesperson named Katrina Pearson, who was helping plan the events for the 6th, she told the committee that she was worried about what she was hearing from those groups. But those concerns from her were not listened to. Okay, well, as we mentioned, the committee presented testimony that Trump planned in advance to tell his supporters on January 6th to march to the Capitol. Can you just explain, Tom, what is the significance of that piece of this? Right. There's been some debate about whether those comments were spontaneous or pre-planned. According to that testimony from Pearson, this idea had been discussed for days in advance. We even saw a draft tweet, never sent, where Trump told people he would march to the Capitol. And of course, Trump ultimately did tell people to march to the Capitol, despite the testimony we heard that he was told people in the crowd were armed. In the aftermath of the attack, we learned former Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale sent a text message where he said Trump's rhetoric, quote, killed someone. Mm. Now, finally, I should just say at the very end of hearing, we heard some important information from committee co-chair Liz Cheney that they had information former president had called a witness who was set to testify. Cheney said they referred that information to the Justice Department. That is NPR's Tom Dreisbach. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. In Michigan, more than three-quarters of a million people have signed a petition to support abortion rights. It's part of a voter-led effort to protect abortion rights in the state constitution this November. As Michigan Radio's Kate Wells reports, some supporters say the Supreme Court overturning Roe pushed them to become politically active for the first time. In 2017, Amanda Major found out that she was pregnant with her second child. She was thrilled. And then doctors told her there was a problem. 
I found out halfway through the pregnancy that the baby my husband and I hoped for uh, suffered from a rare and life-limiting genetic condition. So um, we ultimately made the compassionate choice to end the pregnancy for my well-being and the life of what we thought would be our child. Major was heartbroken. But one thing that did help was this online group of people who were going through the same loss. But unlike her, a lot of them had a tough time finding a way to terminate their pregnancies. Depending on where they lived, they had to travel long distances. Some were made to feel isolated or ashamed. It was life-changing, and I believe that other people should be able to have control of this aspect in their lives. At the time, though, abortion rights in Michigan seemed pretty stable. So life went on. Major and her husband had another baby, a boy. And then this year, her political awakening found an outlet. She joined this petition drive in Michigan. She became the lead volunteer in her region, organizing everyone from grandmothers to college kids, gathering thousands of signatures, even amongst the conservative rural towns of northwest Michigan. It just made me feel less helpless, I guess. If this petition is approved, voters will be asked in November if they want to add an amendment to the state constitution, one that would guarantee an individual right to reproductive freedom. That includes the right to abortion and contraception and fertility treatments. The amendment would allow restrictions on abortion later in pregnancy, but not if the patient's physical or mental health is at stake. The petition drive was already underway this year, but it really took off in May after the leak of the Supreme Court's draft decision to overturn Roe. Jessica Ayub is with the ACLU of Michigan, one of the petition's backers, along with Planned Parenthood. Folks realized that this big, scary thing that they did not think would happen might actually happen. Ayub says some Michiganders were registering to vote just to be eligible to sign the petition. One woman drove 40 miles to attend a rally where she knew she could sign. And in the week after Roe was overturned, there were as many as 200 events at everything from farmers markets to full-fledged rallies. And finally, on Monday, organizers delivered more than 750,000 signatures to state officials in Lansing. They feel pretty confident they only need to get about 400,000 of those approved to make it on the ballot. They even held a rally the same day. When our bodies are under attack, what do we do? There are two other states with similar proposals on their November ballots, California and Vermont. But in Michigan, abortion rights are dangling by a thread. Now that Roe is no longer in effect, Michigan could become subject to its 1931 abortion law. That law makes abortion a felony, even for rape or incest. That law is not being enforced right now because of ongoing lawsuits, but that could change any day. Conservatives have already started attacking this proposed amendment. They say it's dangerously radical. They claim it would allow late-term abortions for practically any reason. And ACLU field organizer Jessica Ayub says there will be an intense battle to get out the vote. This is just the start of our fight, and we know that it is a long road to November. Activists on both sides expect to spend millions, and they predict donations will pour in from outside Michigan as well, and that voters in other states will be watching. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Michigan. And that story comes to us from NPR's partnership with Michigan Radio and Kaiser Health News. (laughs) 
Okay, so hiking to the top of one of Colorado's highest peaks is a favorite summertime activity. But what about crawling? Well, right now, one man is ascending Pikes Peak on his hands and knees, pushing a peanut with his nose. From member station KRCC in Colorado Springs, Abigail Beckman reports. 53-year-old Bob Salem is lying on his stomach in the red dirt at the base of the nearly 13-mile trail to the top of Pikes Peak. Basically, I'm just going to sit here and low crawl my way up here. The Army vet and stay-at-home dad is wearing a device affixed to his face that looks like both a homemade gas mask and the trunk of a very skinny elephant. It's made out of a mask from a CPAP machine with a black plastic serving spoon duct taped to it. A peanut in its shell rests on the ground in front of him. I mean, there's not really much to it, but (laughs) just keep flicking. There's nothing fast about pushing a peanut this way, especially to the top of a mountain more than 14,000 feet above sea level. But for Salem, this isn't about working quickly. It gives me an opportunity to celebrate our nice little city here, and I have a charity that I'm on the board of, and I get to actually talk about that a little bit. The charity works to house people experiencing homelessness. Salem never touches the peanut with his hands. As he flicks it forward, he encounters a trail runner coming down. You're not doing this all the way up to the peak, are you? Oh, yeah. Get out. Yep, all the way up. Oh, my gosh. You are the man, I tell you. (laughs) Salem is attempting to become the fourth person to push a peanut up Pike's Peak with his nose. The first was in 1929. Local historian Michael Mayo says it took three weeks. There were stories about squirrels and tourists taking his peanuts, and so he had to keep replacing the peanuts with a new supply. Other pushers made it to the summit in 1963 and 1976. Salem thought he could finish in three days. That was three days ago. His current progress is about four and a half miles, less than halfway. He's camping along the way. A spotter is carrying his backpack. Well, I got knee pads and elbow pads, okay, and and my trusty little hat here. For the higher elevations, I got like a one-piece snowsuit if I needed or something like that. But other than that, just some sunscreen and... (laughs) He hopes he'll reach the top by the weekend. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Beckman in Colorado Springs. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered and Marketplace starting at 6.30, fitness company Peloton's already had massive layoffs. Now it's looking to cut costs by trimming down its supply chain. We'll have a look at what that entails. Marketplace starts at 6.30. Stocks stepped back today. The Dow fell 0.62%, 193 points, to close at 30,981. S&P and NASDAQ lost nearly a full percent. The S&P finished at 38.19. The NASDAQ closed down at 11,265. A Texas-based theater chain is opening a 10-screen theater in Boston Seaport District. Alamo Drafthouse Cinema. This is its first location in New England. As the name suggests, the theater will have a full bar service and food. It's expected to open early next year, where the Showplace Icon Theater used to be that closed during the pandemic. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. Tonight, the Sox and Tampa Bay Rays play game two of their four-game series. Chris Sale takes his first spin of the season tonight. Sale's been out with injuries and surgery. Tonight, he'll pitch against the Rays' Corey Kluber. 
at Tropicana Field, 7:10 start time. And the Patriots are saying goodbye to wide receiver Keneal Harry. Today, the team traded Harry to the Chicago Bears in exchange for a seventh-round draft pick in 2024. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at pacaso.com. And Porter Square Books and BU Center for Anti-Racist Research, presenting W. Kamau Bell and Kate Schatz on August 5th. Tickets at portersquarebooks.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? To this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Could have a few showers and thunderstorms tonight, sometime before midnight, and overnight lows should be about 68. For tomorrow, sunny skies, about 88 degrees for a high. Partly sunny Thursday, showers in the early part of the day, 82 degrees tops. 84 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Two and a half years into the COVID-19 pandemic, let's check in on the vaccination effort in Africa. Only a fifth of people on the continent are fully vaccinated. Plans to bring more doses to African nations have fallen short. Last month, the World Trade Organization reached a deal to relax patent protections so poorer countries could produce vaccines themselves. We're joined now by the co-chair of the African Union's Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance. Dr. Ayoade Alakaja, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. To begin with, you work at the forefront of vaccine distribution and access for African nations. So just give us a snapshot of what the situation looks like across the continent right now. Well, I mean, as you say, I've been working over the last couple of years at the forefront, not just for access to vaccines, but for access to all countermeasures, um, which includes diagnostics and now treatments that as they've become available um, to ensure that those in the low and low middle income countries of the world, many and most of which are on the African continent, have the same access to vaccines, diagnostics, which are tests and treatments like things like Paxlovid and, and other and oxygen, the very basic that people in the US, the UK, EU and other parts of the world have. Um, That has been a deeply depressing role to be in really over the last uh, couple of years as we have seen that the high income countries of the world have clearly prioritised themselves but forgotten that this pandemic is affecting all of us. What does that inequality translate to in terms of human experience? You told the New York Times people are dying silently. People absolutely are dying silently and thank you for for, for talking about it in human terms because I think, you know, we saw in the early days those awful images from New York hospitals, from from America and from hospitals in Brazil and that was the measure of the impact. But what do you do in countries where you do not have health systems to be overwhelmed. So we have said for parts of the world and parts of Africa that, oh, well, they haven't had COVID. But that is not true. It is just we haven't had the cameras being able to roll the, that B-roll in, in hospital wards because those wards do not exist, in ICUs because in many communities, ICUs do not exist. So people have died silently. People have died at home. So many of these deaths have gone unrecorded and therefore there has been a 
silent pandemic, a silent toll on parts of this world where the inequity in measuring the impact of the pandemic itself is pushing the inequity of access to the countermeasures and to the tools needed to prevent further infection. World leaders are sounding the alarm about the more transmissible BA5 variant. And in the fall, the U.S. and other highly developed nations are expected to get boosters that specifically target that variant. Do you expect that those supplies are likely to reach African nations? Absolutely not. I mean, the vaccine doses are rolling out to the African continent, but far too little, far too late in many ways. You know, we were left at the back of the queue whilst the rest of the world has moved on. You know, the rest of the world is providing not just fourth boosters, you know, what we're calling the primary series plus a booster, but they're also now looking at variant adaptive vaccines. They're looking at the next generation of vaccines. There, of course, has been greed. There, of course, has been the sense of we must take care of our own first. And that is human nature. And any global leader, any president, any prime minister has a responsibility primarily to their own. But when you recognize that this virus is a virus, it is not a person, it is not a, uh, it, it, it is not a system, it is a virus that is airborne. And therefore, unless all of the world is safe and is protected from it, we will continue to see these waves. Now, today it is BA5. We don't know what it will be tomorrow. So it is self-defeating because to take care of one's own self should be to take care of the rest of the world and to help the rest of the world take care of themselves. Not charity, but global solidarity and partnership, I think, is what the world is calling for, which is lacking. What do you make of the World Trade Organization's deal that is supposed to make it easier for poor nations to access COVID vaccines? How much of a difference do you expect this to make? Sadly, in reality, it is very watered down. It is not going to help for COVID today. And it does not include tests and treatments. It is just for vaccines, very limited, very, very narrow for vaccines only. What we need is a broader agreement. And I understand they're going back to that negotiating table to work on tests and treatments. And until we can produce what we need in Africa, what we need in Latin America, what we need in Asia Pacific ourselves, we are always going to go back into this scenario because people's nature is to protect their own. So there will be export bans and various measures to stop whatever it is, be it a vaccine or a treatment, leaving the shores because people are trying to protect their own. So what we in Africa are saying is we need to be able to produce ourselves. We're not asking for permission. We're asking you to stop, to remove the roadblocks in the way. The scientists are ahead. But policy is behind and policy is what is holding the world back in this moment. And so having waged this fight for equity every day over more than two years of this pandemic, do you have any hope that this gap can be closed? (laughs) That um, do I have hope? One must always have hope. Do I have hope that the equity gap can be closed? I think the equity gap is due to so much more that is fundamental within our systems. I think the equity gap is due to the fact that the global health and global development infrastructure is flawed and fundamentally broken. Many of the systems we're working with today, the Bretton Woods institutions, were put together post-World War II to fix Europe. 
listen to what I just said. They were put together to fix Europe. And yet they're being applied to the rest of the world. They are not fit for purpose. They are based largely in high-income parts of the world. They are not fit for purpose for low and low middle-income countries. So what we must do is we must reshape, we must reimagine, we must rebuild the global health and global development architecture of this world to make it more inclusive, to make it such that the voices from the South can be heard and can be understood, where we build it again together for the good of the whole world, not just for some of the world, so that all may have a chance at life and quality of life and the true definition of health. Dr. Ayoa Dayalakaja, co-chair of the African Union's Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance, speaking with us from Abuja, Nigeria. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Red's Best, with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com.